sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hey, I'm Nate Larkin here with your friend and mine, Aaron Porter. Uh, here we are, midweek, middle of a of a work week. I can see Aaron. You can't. He's right there on screen and behind him, all the paraphernalia of his very, very busy life. Uh, you're grinding out the engineering reports, Aaron? I am. I have not been in the mood, but I have also re reorganized my life where I have put a whole computer workstation next to my bed, kind of <laughs> like when I would visit my parents for two months in the summer back in the day. Yeah. So I just don't leave my room. I go from there the stationary bike that has the computer on it and uh, then eventually find my way in here. But it just makes working at home a little easier when I'm going to like different places. Oh uh, man. I also yeah, like, uh, not, as you know, I don't like putting pants on. So I enjoy not having to put pants on, you know, since I have my future daughter-in-law in the house, uh, I'm sure she appreciates me wearing pants, but I can just stay in my room in my underwear and work for, you know, the first three or four hours. Beautiful. All right, that's a, Beautiful. That, is a, that is a picture I did not need to see. But <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and I'm back in the mode right now. Uh, you know, it's post-hurricane. Now, both of us uh, have found ourselves in this field where we're communicating for engineers who are evaluating property losses and in the wake of a big storm, like the ones, the two actually that hit Florida recently. Uh, there's plenty of work. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I myself, Aaron, I'm back. I still am very busy with Samson Society and Samson House, but I also have to pay attention to that engineering company that I thought I had offloaded onto other people in order to keep it going. But we get a break coming up in just barely over a month. This is, uh, and, and I'll tell you what, I have made a commitment. I'm bringing my brother with me, my brother, Dan, who's actually been a guest on this show. We're talking about the England walking trip. That's right. Dan is coming and his twin brother, Sam, is coming. Dan, if uh, Dan works harder than I do and hasn't, he hasn't gone anywhere without his laptop in 15 years. I haven't gone anywhere without my laptop in 20 years. Yeah. We have made a commitment. We're leaving the laptop home. We're going to be away from it for eight freaking days. How about you? Yeah, I, I think I have enough vacation time that I can do that, too. I do not see any reason why a laptop would need to be a part of hanging out and walking with men in England. So, yeah. You know what I'm going to be curious about? I'm wondering if I am going to miss it. Because I, I think that as much as I bitch and moan about the work, there is also, it's a way for me to numb out and escape. I think I medicate sometimes. I know I do. I know I medicate sometimes with work. So I've, I've seen you without <clears throat> your laptop more mm-hmm. in the last number of years. I mean, the first 10 years I knew you, I would always have to drive because you would be on your laptop in the car working oh, on yeah. engineering things. Uh, yeah. Or you'd make sure to bring Allie so she and I could be chatting away and you'd be sitting <laughs> in the back seat working on your laptop. <laughs> so your laptop was absolutely always with you for so long. Yeah, yeah. It seems like the last few years you've weaned mm-hmm. off it quite a bit. Was that yeah. hard or did you find that enjoyable? Yeah. Well, I mean, I did find it enjoyable, but I could always go and take a hit. You know what I mean? Mm. I could always work. I didn't have to work all the time, but I always could work. So what's it going to be like when I can't? Mm. That'll be fun to find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, uh, You and I are going to be walking through ancient villages in England with a few other guys. And we're going to do we're going to be following a spiritual program. We're going to be we're going to be stepping back and really taking uh, an overview of our life and of, uh, you know, where we are in recovery, 
where we are in the healing process. Exciting. Uh, always a little intimidating, a little scary. But uh, it's kind of like going to the doctor. By the way, I went for my annual physical yesterday. Or actually, it was the intro for the annual physical. They had to go draw blood and stuff. Mm-hmm. I freaking passed out in the office in the when they when they took the blood. I really did. I, you're not going to get a response out of me. I have to lay down. The last time I got one, and they made me fast for like two days. I yeah, was yeah. sitting up, and I yeah. woke up with three nurses trying to hold me up. Evidently, I was hard to hold up. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, "Come on, why? Why does this happen? I don't care about getting a blood test, but still, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know." I'm not going to judge you. We yeah, might have okay. listeners judging us, but yeah. 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 <laughs> going to an intensive for some guys feels like going to the doctor. It's scary. I know I'll feel better after the trip. I know I have to look at issues that I've been avoiding, mm-hmm. uh, but it can be a little bit terrifying. Uh, the walk in England isn't that, but I am ready to go and do some work with some other brothers, help them do their work. Have them help me do my work, and we'll see. In eight days, we're going to come out better men. I think so. Yeah. And speaking of, we're going to get to hear about uh, one of our pirate friends' journeys today on the Pirate yeah. One podcast. Oh, I think yeah. we should get to hearing that story. I think that's a great that's a great suggestion. So uh, when we come back, we will do exactly that. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. But today, Aaron, we are interviewing a bona fide pirate monk. I mean, we're not even reaching outside uh, the tribe. We're reaching inside the tribe to talk to a guy who uh, has a story. <laughs> I, I was just happy you said bona fide. That's very piratey. Bones and skeletons. <laughs> this is a bona fide pirate monk. It's going to be good. Yeah. Well, well uh, Ron Williams... The bearded man himself joining us from somewhere in southern Indiana, I guess close to Louisville. Mm-hmm. Welcome, Ron. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So uh, you've been uh, aboard on the Samson Society for a while. Uh, what in the world got you here? What got me here? Well, yeah. um, what got me here were, was. Uh, my addiction and the consequences mm-hmm. of my addiction. What actually brought me to Samson Society is that uh, I recognized uh, that I struggled in my recovery through the holiday season. Mm-hmm. And so I started in the summer looking for something to help me get through the holiday season. My kids are always with their mother. My grandkids are with, with, uh, with my ex-wife. Mm-hmm. And I'm alone a lot. And I heard about Samson Society on another podcast mm-hmm. and um, reached out, registered for a newcomer meeting. But being the coward that I am, I postponed that for about a month. <laughs> and then I did the newcomer meeting. And uh, then being the coward that I am, I waited about three months to do my first real meeting. Yeah. And then lo and behold, I arrived. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Well, I did. So, wait, wait. I want to, I want to hear what you can call yourself a coward, but that simply means you had certain fears of pressing in. What mm-hmm. were those fears? Well, you know, like Nate says, you don't have to be a porn or a sex addict to be a part of Samson society, but it helps. Well, I fit that criteria. But I have some extra circumstances um, involved in my addiction, and I just really wasn't sure how they would be accepted in a group setting. Mm -hmm. Um, I am a registered sex offender. And so uh, 20 years ministry, and now today I'm a registered sex offender. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so there's a story behind that. Give, give us some of the story, whatever, whatever you want to share. 
Yeah, well, um, I'll try to be quick. I grew up in a home with an alcoholic father, and I learned really young that the easiest way to not get hurt was just to not feel anything. And so I learned to shut down emotionally. And um, and I, I got really good at that. Um, the problem is, as I grew older and became an adult, I continued to carry that coping mechanism with me. Um, I entered into the ministry and people in the ministry loved me. Uh, I had a reputation as a, a good speaker and a good listener. The problem is when I communicated with people, the conversation was never more than a 16th of an inch deep. I just didn't open up about anything with me. And I carried that into marriage. Um, and of course, refusing to really open up to my wife created all kinds of problems there, which eventually led to a divorce after 13 years. Um, I have four daughters, four wonderful daughters from that marriage and several grandchildren now. But um, uh, I thought even, even with my wife and in my marriage, there was always that fear that if she really knew who I was, what I was like, she would leave. And you know what? She did because mm -hmm. I kept her at arm's length for 13 years and never opened up to her. And um, what I discovered when she left is that self-defense mechanism, the idea that if I don't let anybody get close, I can't be hurt. That was a miserable failure. I was devastated. Um, I, I can say that I, I truly, I truly loved my wife. She told me several years later, we're actually closer. We're better friends now than we were the last few years we were married. She's remarried. And, uh, but she told me years after the divorce, she said the entire marriage, I always felt like you expected me to leave. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I guess deep down I did. And uh, when I went through that divorce, I left the ministry for a little while and then returned to the ministry. But I, I never, even, even in all that pain, I never opened up to anybody about, uh, about the pain, about the emotional um, devastation that I was experiencing. Um, I didn't talk to anybody about that, didn't communicate with anybody. And, um, and, uh, that is a very dangerous thing is uh, mm -hmm. to not have community, to not have anyone that you can open up to and be honest with. And so in the years after my divorce in the years after the divorce, um, I, I went back into ministry, um, and ministry on its own is one of the most isolated jobs I think that exists on the face of the planet. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the last thing you want to do is share with somebody that you're struggling with any kind of, of sinful thing. And, and, um, I, you know, I, I struggled with some porn in high school and, and it never was really, it wasn't a big thing for me. My addiction to pornography and my sexual addiction began after my divorce. Uh, because after my divorce, the internet was becoming a big thing. Um, I think they might have had high speed at the time, but I could never have afforded it back then. And so everything I did was on dial up. But there used to be a thing called Yahoo Games. And so I would stay up all night. I'd be at church all day, counseling, preparing sermons, all, all that kind of thing. And then I would come home at night. And I would jump into Yahoo games and play cards all night long. And um, through some people that I met there, and I was playing with people scattered all over the country, and through some people that I, I met there, they introduced me to on online pornography. And um, and I, 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 I began to meet a lot of people through the cards. There were specific people I played with regularly. But one of the guys that I played cards with um, – started introducing me to he introduced me to online porn and then he started introducing me to young ladies and um one young lady started playing cards with us on a regular basis and uh, her profile said that she was 20 years old and from texas 
Now, online, you can be anybody you want to be. I was in my 40s, but I never talked to anybody about how old I was. Uh, webcams and that kind of thing were, were just beginning to happen. But this young lady happened to have a webcam. And uh, she would get on that sometimes while we played cards. And uh, I, I, at the time, was in my 40s. And uh, like I said, her profile said she was 20 and from Texas. But, but she and I kind of hit it off. And we started to spend a lot of time talking. After we'd finished playing cards, uh, we, would, we would spend time just hanging out online and talking. And she invited me to what would have been an early form of an online chat room uh, where she could be on cam. I didn't have a camera, um, but she could be on, on, on a webcam. And um, on dial-up, it was pretty choppy. You can imagine that. Mm -hmm. But uh, as we talked there and just seemed to hit it off, during one of our conversations, she started to take her clothes off. And um, that got me pretty excited. <laughs> and so I did not complain at all. And that became a, a regular thing for us. We'd play cards for, for all hours of the night. And then after the card games were over, she and I would jump into this private chat room. It wasn't a paid thing or anything like that. It was just a place where you could be and, and talk. And, and she would be on her camera and she would undress. And um, we did that for months. But over time, I began to realize that some of her story didn't line up with her profile and the things she had presented at the beginning. For instance, I found out that she was not in Texas. I actually found out she was on the far end of the same state that I'm in here in Indiana. Um, a little bit later, I found out that she wasn't 20 years old. She was under the age of 18. But we had been interacting playing cards and then in this online chat for quite a while. And, and this whole time, um, I'd been involved in ministry. And, uh, mm -hmm. but when she told me that, when I found that out, we'd been interacting for several months and I thought to myself, how can anybody find out? How can anybody find out what's going on here? Um, we've been doing it. Uh, uh, things are safe. And so I didn't stop. And um, one of the next things that I found out is that her father, uh, I, I was told later, I found out that her father was a police officer and that he had found out what she had been doing. And I found that out when uh, I think it was about four police officers um, with rifles, I still haven't really figured out what was going on with the rifles, but four police officers with rifles knocked on the door of my apartment. My oldest daughter was living with me at the time and was in college and she opened the door and the police rushed in. You can imagine the trauma that my daughter experienced, not having any idea what was going on. And, uh, they came in, uh, questioned me questioned my daughter, took all the computers and phones, and left. They didn't arrest me. But being the smart guy that I am, I knew they were coming back. And so I got my kids together, all four of them together, and told them what I had been doing. Uh, I, I, I called up a friend of mine that uh, I had been on staff at his church pre previously. I met with him and told him what I had been doing. And I told him, the police are going to come back. And they did. They came back. They arrested me. I was originally charged with um, somewhere in the area of 20 felonies. Uh, most court systems, uh, at least here in Indiana, throw every charge they can imagine at you in hopes that some stick. And that's what they did. They charged me with about 20 felonies. It would have been well over 100 years in prison. Right from the beginning, as soon as they came in the door and my daughter was present, I made a decision. It's time for me to be honest. And so I was honest with the police. I was honest with the lawyers. 
told them what I had done. And as I, I told them, I said, these three charges, I've done these, but I don't know what the rest of this stuff is. And uh, over time, they, after getting into the computer, they dropped the rest of the charges, kept those three, and uh, sent me to prison. Wow. That must have been, I mean, you've just described so many terrifying and traumatic things. And your story just ended with you going to prison. I can't imagine how terrifying that was for you. It was terrifying. It was the first time I had ever been arrested. The first time I'd ever had any negative interaction with, with the law. I mean, I'd been in the ministry for, for most of my life. I had a, a, a people, people loved me. I was a good guy. Um, but I was a porn sex addict Mm -hmm. and, um, I had refused to face that, you know, uh, uh, something I'll, I'll share real quick is that I, I had, uh, for a long time, I'd been in that binge purge cycle, you know, where I would act out. Um, there were times when, uh, I would get off, uh, work at church, come home. I would be up all night long, go back into the church the next morning or, or, uh, and, and then I, I also was, uh, started to work for a printing company. I'd, I'd, uh, uh, and and I, I would I would go to work be on all night long, no sleep, and then I would go through the 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 conviction, the shame, the guilt, and I would delete everything off the computer, cry, beg God to take all this away from me, and that would last maybe twenty four to forty eight hours before I'd be back online doing it all over again. And just about two weeks before the police came to my house, I, I still have a, a notebook in, uh, in a closet. And in that notebook, I, I wrote, Jesus, you've got to do something to take this away from me. I can't stop. I can't, I can't keep doing this, but I can't stop. You've got to do something to take it away from me. I just wasn't expecting him to have me arrested when I wrote that. So and, what, uh, what were you expecting as you got out? How long were you in prison? I was in prison uh, for two years. So two years, long time. Mm-hmm. What were you expecting when you got out and how did that match up with reality? Well, in, in Indiana, in prison, they have a program called Psalms. They have a, a really good therapy program for sex offenders and uh, all sex offenders are required to participate in that um, prior to being released from prison. And so I had been involved in that, but a counselor at the prison told me when you get out of prison, man, you can never go back to church again. You won't be able to attend. You won't be able to do anything you're not going to be able to set foot on church property anywhere. Nobody's going to have anything to do with you. Um, nobody's going to want you around. And um, where else was I supposed to go? That's what I'd been doing my entire life was church. And um, and so I was pretty scared about that. I was told so, I was. So let me clarify, because I've, I've worked with, a number of sex offenders who have come to the church and they had certain uh, things that they had to do as far as talking to us and letting us know and all of that. So were they saying you couldn't go or that you wouldn't be accepted? Like, was this a rule being put on you? No, it wasn't a rule being put on me. I was being told because of my background in ministry that I would not be accepted that uh, I, I would not, it's not a rule the state was putting on me. While I was on probation and parole, I had those rules. If I was going to visit a church, I had to tell them, hey, I'm a sex offender. And um, uh, and, uh, and and go through that with them. But, um, but what I was being told is because of my background in ministry, all of my years in ministry, that churches were going to refuse to have anything to do with me. Mm-hmm. Okay. So did you find that was true or did it take a while to find the courage to step back into community? What, what was that process for you? 
Well, actually, the uh, the the friend when when the police first came to my house and took the computers, I, I mentioned that I had met with a friend of mine. His name is Rob. I'd been on staff at a church that he was pastoring. Well, while I was locked up, he had moved and and was attending a, a new church plant um, here in the area. And I, I came back from prison, back to the same area where I'd been in ministry and lived most of my life. And uh, Rob had, was was attending a new church plant here, and he had invited me to come and visit. And um, uh, I was actually in a, what they call community transition, where I was spending the night in the county jail, but I got out in the morning to look for work, and, and I could get out on Sundays to go to church. And at that point, I hadn't been told I had to warn a church before I showed up. So I, I went to visit this new church plant in the area here, and uh, um, I went in. I went in feeling like everybody knows who I am and everybody knows what I've done. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say uh, a reporter here in the area made a pet project out of me for a little while when I first got locked up, and I was on the news a lot, and I had been in ministry here for years. so. I walked into this church thinking everybody knows who I am. Everybody knows what I've done. Tremendous amount of shame. But I sat down. I sat in the back away from everybody so as not to have to interact with anybody and, uh, and, 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 and sat through the service. At the end of the service, and I had not been told that I had to notify churches that I was a sex offender, but at the end of the service, I caught the pastor at this new church plant and uh, told him, I said, I need to talk to you for a minute. And uh, hey, all friend, oh, sure, brother, we're glad to have you here. I said, okay, well, I got out of prison last week. I'm a registered sex offender and I'd like to attend your church. And uh, his jaw dropped to the floor and he stuttered for about 30 seconds, seemed like about five minutes. And um, then he told me, I'm glad you're here. I hope you come back next week. And uh, I, I, I saw my friend who, who was attending there who had told me about the church and um, talked with him. And, and that's where I began to attend church. And I still attil- attend that church today. And it's been 11 years, maybe. Now, there have been all kinds of hurdles there. Mm-hmm. Um, all kinds of things to, to walk through um, there. But I still attend that same church. Now, I will say I visited other churches. Um, and I saw one of two approaches taken from churches because I made a commitment. I made a commitment when the police showed up at my door. I made a commitment from here on out because I, I had worked in the recovery field back in the late 80s and early 90s with, with drug and alcohol rehabilitation. Nobody back then identified porn or sex as an addiction. But I knew that I always preached to the guys ruthless honesty. And so when the police had first showed up at my door, I made that decision. I need to be honest. And so I, I would go to visit churches, and I had churches that I, I would tell them first time I was there, hey, I'm a registered sex offender. Um, here's what I did. And uh, I had some churches, they, they took one or two approaches. The first approach was, come on in, brother. Jesus forgives everybody. How would you like to help with our children's ministry? What kind of messed up thinking is that? It's you know? not great. And, uh, but there were churches that took that approach. I had other churches. I had one church in particular. It was a, a, a relatively large church. And I caught the pastor after the service and told him, this is who I am. I'm a registered sex offender. And he listened to what I had to say. And when I finished, he put his hand on my shoulder and he told me, brother, I'm glad that you're following Jesus. You just need to go follow him somewhere else. That and how did that did that feel like? Yep, that's what I expected. That proved my fears. 
Or... That is what I expected. And and that, you know, at, at the time, shame was was um, a big deal, you know. I, I'll be honest with you. When I moved into my first apartment, I still was convinced that everybody everywhere knew exactly who I was, knew exactly what I had done. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I, I sometimes would get up in the morning wondering if somebody – Will, will somebody have slashed my tires because they found out who I am? You know, will, will somebody have done something to, you know, whatever, put something on the door uh, because of the shame that I carried and the fear yeah. that I walked in? When you were in the program in prison, was that your first taste of community and being honest with a group of people about it? That, that was my first taste. And that's a sad thing to say, considering I've been active in ministry for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is, and yet not surprising. So when you got out, did you expect, okay, I'm going to have to deal with the consequences of this, but I've now been hit with such a blow. I'm not, I'm not a sex addict anymore. I'm not going to be acting out, or did you have some other thought about that? Um, when I when I first got out in in the state of Indiana, besides the, the the therapy while you're locked up, when you get out, or at least the time at, at the time I got out, I think it's still the same way. Um, while you're on probation and parole, you are required to participate in mandatory group therapy, and um, and so uh, I, I was in group therapy for four years after my release. Now, I'll be honest with you, I, I didn't get a whole lot out of it. I did not want to be there. If I didn't go, if I didn't pay my bill, and for most of us just getting out of prison, and especially sex offenders, work is a hard thing to come by. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, and, and so, but if you didn't go, and if you didn't pay your bill, that was a parole or a probation violation, and you went back to prison. And so um, uh, there was a real attitude on my part towards the group. Um, and so uh, looking back on it now and, and some of the, the worksheets and notes and all that I still have from that, I, I did learn some good things there, um, but I didn't make good use of it. Now, because of my past work in recovery, while I was in prison, I knew that I was not going to be able to survive without community when I got out. And, and again, going back to that friend of mine, Rob, who I'd met with after the mm-hmm. police came by the first time, um, Rob visited me while I was in jail. Um, we stayed in contact, close contact while I was in prison. And I attempted to put together a small network of people that I could have contact with that I could trust when I got out. And I did have that. Mm-hmm. And that was a benefit that the majority of guys that I know that have been released didn't have. Uh, but I did have that. Now, when I got out, I did. I came out of prison thinking, man, I'm cured. It's two years. I haven't looked at anything. I haven't done anything wrong sign of my intelligence there because all I had experienced was two years locked up where I had no access. I hadn't dealt with any of the issues that had, had, had led me in that direction. Any, I hadn't dealt with any of the trauma and, and the past experience. And so shortly after I got out, um, now I wasn't, while I was on two years of parole, I wasn't allowed any internet access or anything. And then then I went on two more years of probation and I was allowed internet, but there were regular visits to my apartment. When I was allowed internet, my probation officer uh, required covenant eyes. The probation office here requires covenant eyes on all sex offenders. And they got my reports. And if anything showed up that wasn't supposed to be there, that was a violation that could get me sent back again. And even though I'd only served two years, I actually, if I got sent back, I had eight years hanging over my head mm. uh, if I went back. And so, so I did, I did, I struggled when I first got out. I, in fact, going back to my friend Rob, and this is where community and, 
And, and in my head, the foundation for the need for community came in is that I got out of prison in January. I moved into an apartment. It was right down the road from the local mall, big, big mall in the area. And as spring came in, all the young ladies started coming to the mall and dressing like young ladies do. And you talk about being triggered, and I'm not blaming the young ladies for what was happening. What was happening is I hadn't dealt with anything. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that, I, I remember the very first warm day of spring. And on my way home from work, I drove by the mall and I saw the women. And that evening, my friend Rob says that he doesn't remember this, but I called him. That evening, I was sitting in the middle of my living room floor crying. And I called Rob and told him, Rob, I'm not going to make it, man. I'm going back to prison. (laughs) And uh, he drove over and sat in the middle of my living room floor with me and cried with me. Mm. I don't remember him saying anything. All I remember is him sitting and crying with me and putting his arm around me. Um, But, you know, that's exactly what I needed Mm. at that point was to know that I wasn't alone. You're making such an important point, I think, because of the availability of such intensely graphic material we think that's the we we can tend towards thinking that is the issue but i think back to the first 20 years of my life where i only had access to sears catalogs from time to time and victoria's secret magazines that would come in the mail and it was the same need being met regardless and so here you are still not having the level of access which can make you feel like the issues being dealt with, but it's not because mm-hmm. that's not the issue. And so you're getting triggered by things that are not pornography, that are not pornographic. It's just bringing you back to that place where you're like, this is how I am soothing this need. So how did you find out what the need really was? Well, um, uh, you know, when I came off of probation, when I finally came off of probation four years after getting out of prison, I once again had convinced myself that I was cured, that I was healed, that everything was behind me. And so as soon as I came off probation, the first thing that I did was I got rid of covenant eyes and everything that had anything to do with any of the controls that had been on me. And the second thing that I did was I went straight back to pornography. Um, convinced that I was cured and healed. Um, And that was like a second revelation. Man, you're a lot more screwed up than you thought you were. There's something else going on here. And that is when, for me, real recovery began. Um, That's when uh, I started looking for groups. I started looking for material. that's really when, when I, I tied in, when I, I got tied in. I'd been attending my church, been involved in things at my church. Um, I, I'll throw in also that early on, right after just weeks after I got there, um, I approached the pastors at my church because <clears throat> they had allowed me to help on the Connect team, and then they asked me to go over into the children's wing to count money with them after the offering. And I was like, dude, you want me in the children's wing anyway. But I I helped them. I told them, you've got to have a policy in place. And I could see that speaking as a pastor and a sex offender. And I helped them write a policy. And I've helped a number of churches write policies over the years. um, Because I think churches have an obligation to protect the congregation. But I think that they have a commandment from God to minister to broken, hurting people like sex offenders. So anyway, um, after I came off probation, went back to porn, I put covenant eyes back on everything, tightened everything down as hard as I could, and um, and and began to read podcasts, books, 
um, all that kind of thing, everything that I could to figure out what was wrong with me. Um, uh, I did have a, a small group of guys that I surrounded myself with where I, I could be completely honest. Um, I had a small group of guys where when I said I got triggered by a 15 year old girl today, mm -hmm. they didn't point a finger at me and say, Oh my God, you perv. That never happened. Mm -hmm. They listened to me and they helped me walk through that. And, um, uh, and, and so it, it, that it was, it was after that, that second fall that I really began to do the work. I, I began to learn about the effects of trauma. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I actually, uh, I heard about Chip Dodd. I know you guys are familiar with Chip Dodd sure. and his work on emotions. And I, I, I'll tell you, Chip's book, um, all the podcasts, all the material that he's got out there on emotions mm -hmm. opened my eyes to a world of things that I had never seen or heard of before. And that's when I began to recognize that my issues stemmed from trying to shut down emotionally, trying to hide and run from my emotions, from the pain and from the trauma and uh, all the things that I had experienced. And, and I'll speak for myself. In my experience, what happened with me is that I picked up coping mechanisms as a child. Mm -hmm. And over the years, I'll find tuned those coping mechanisms. And they really, I think, were pretty beneficial for me when I was young. Mm -hmm. But they weren't ever intended for me to carry throughout my lifetime. And it wasn't until I was able to begin to really learn to sit in my emotions, to identify my emotions. What am I feeling? Um, what am I feeling? What's going on inside my head and inside my heart? And I was able to begin to process those, begin to respond and work through those in the way that God intended for us to experience and process our emotions. That's when I began to experience freedom. Yeah. Well, since we have you here, and I think it's important, um, I think a lot of folks don't don't know how to respond to people who are registered sex offenders. So there's there's two two things I'd like you to speak to. One is what do you think people most misunderstand when they hear, oh, that guy there is a registered sex offender? What do you wish they understood when they heard those words? Um, I think the biggest thing I wish they understood is that while there are a large group of us that are sex offenders, our offenses were not all the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and where we're at is not all the same. I, I remember in that group therapy, the first time I sat in one of those meetings and the therapist required us to, uh, state our name and then what our offense was. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, I was watching that circle and uh, I was seeing guys who were there for child pornography. Uh, I was seeing guys who were in there for soliciting prostitutes. I shared that I was there because I had met a young girl online. And when I found out she was underage, I didn't stop. And then the guy sitting next to me, the next guy past me said, yeah, I was downtown here. And uh, I saw this woman cut through an alley to go to her car. And I followed her down the alley and clubbed her over the head and raped her. And yeah. uh, we're not, we're not all the same. That doesn't, I, I, I'm, I'm real quick and I, I work with a lot of sex offenders now. I help sex offenders now. And, um, and I have to talk to sex offenders and, and explain to them. People do 
not need to fully trust us. We have a history. There are consequences for the things that I did. Um, but we're not all the same. So let, let me let me reframe that so so that you don't have to because you are not saying and so some of it doesn't matter. That's not what you're saying. No. no. It's not a justification, but it it's still I can't remember if we talked about this. We we had a conversation with uh with a friend in a similar situation and I I can't remember if we mentioned this, but but to me it reminds me of the word homeless where the solution to the problem of homeless or what a homeless person is as, as a homeless person is, is totally different. There could be a person with uh, mental um, illness. There could be a person who's a drug addict. There could be a single mom running from a husband. There's all kinds of things that can make a person homeless and how we address that varies depending on the person and i think sex offender is exactly like that where you can have someone who is is has a history of violence you can have a person who has had issues with prepubescent kids versus teenagers these are important differences not mm-hmm. saying anyone is okay but when we don't get to know, okay, what's happening in this person's life? What is this? And and that can be scary for people to address. But I think it it does it does matter. Mm-hmm. Um, even for what you're saying about how we deal with it within churches. That I have known registered sex offenders that have spent lots of times with my kids and my family. That I feel very comfortable with that. There are others mm-hmm. that I would not have put in that situation. <laughs> I had a discussion with uh, a registry officer. I have to go in annually and uh, meet with uh, a registry officer. And um, and uh, uh, I was sharing with him. I said, you know, there are guys that are registered sex offenders. There are guys that are registered sex offenders that I've had over to my to my to my home that, that interact with my family. There are also guys that are sex offenders that I would never trust alone in a room with one of my daughters. And most of my daughters have concealed carry permits and firearms, and I wouldn't trust these guys in there. And that doesn't mean that you can't love those guys or work with those guys. It just has to do with what situations we put them in. So I, I think that is great. That is actually exactly what I was hoping you'd say although if you have other things people can understand anything else come to mind that you would like people to understand well if i could speak to churches just for a second really quick um sex offenders as a general rule the vast majority don't attend church and it's because they're told they're not going to be welcome and they believe they're not going to be welcome they believe they're going to be judged when, when I first started this attending this church, which I still attend, uh, I told you they asked me to come into a children's wing to help count offering, which I thought was kind of, I mean, I just got out of prison. They wanted me to count their money with them, but they wanted me to go into a children's wing to do it. And so we sat down and I began to help them walk through and we put together a plan and it's changed a little bit over the years, but we have there are more sex offenders than just myself that attend the church that I attend now, not a massive amount, but there's still a policy in place. I'm still on the registry and I helped write this policy. When I attend a service, I have what they call a liaison that meets me and that is in the building with me. When I'm inside the building, there's somebody with me. Um, they accompany me to the restroom when I go to the restroom. Mm-hmm. Um, there are days when I really struggle with that. But I have four daughters. And if I would have been attending a church and found out that they had sex offenders there, that nothing was taking place, mm-hmm. 
I would have lost my mind. I'd have never gone back to that church. And so, um, but at the same time, I, I participate. I have served on the Connect team. I have served communion. I was a deacon in this church for a number of years um, as a sex offender. And so um, there are safeguards um, to protect the congregation, to protect the people that are there. And I accept those because I've learned to understand there are consequences for my actions. Mm -hmm. But I'm welcome there. Yeah. I'm welcome. Well, there's before don't don't wrap up yet cuz there's one more thing that I All want right. you to speak to. Um we'll just we'll, we just want to a closing. We'll close here, Nate. But well, I I also have another question here. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. No, I'll I'll make mine the closing question. Okay. Uh Ron, you mentioned that you work with sex offenders. I know you're mm-hmm. active in Samson. You're, you've uh, you've got a local Samson group. You also help to facilitate one of our newcomer meetings. Uh, you do a Wednesday night every other week, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, where do you see redemption in the story? How has God used your brokenness to to fit you for ministry in a way you were not fit before? You know, just a couple of years after I got out of prison, actually while I was still on probation and parole, I started to work with other guys as they got, as they were released from prison. Mm-hmm. I put together a list of places that would hire sex offenders. Mm-hmm. I began to put together a, a list of um, where we can live is very controlled. Most people won't mm-hmm. rent to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I began to put together lists like that. I began to invite guys into my apartment mm-hmm. um, just to have a place to come and to hang out. Now, what's ended up happening is that I, I'm not a, I'm not I'm not the smartest of guys, but I have learned a lot of things over the years that have been beneficial for me. And so, I also started to put together groups to help guys that are struggling with porn and sex addiction and that kind of thing. In fact, I. I went back to school a couple of years ago and uh, got my certification as an addiction recovery coach. That's that's what I do for a living now, um, and um, uh, and and so I specialize in in porn and unhealthy sexual behavior. But we all know that that, that our our uh, our addictions run in packs. Mm-hmm. They uh, they don't operate singly, and so I work with drugs and alcohol and that kind of thing too. But uh, here's the thing: is that I'm still on the registry. I'll be on the registry the rest of my life, mm-hmm. and there are consequences to my behavior. But I would have to say that, especially over the past four or five years, I have felt closer to God. I have felt like I have seen God use me in ways to help other men mm-hmm. that all of my 20 years of ministry combined prior to my arrest would not accumulate and even come close to what's taking yes. place today. Yes. There's a future man for all of us. Yes. It doesn't matter whether our, our addiction resulted in uh, uh, a, uh, a fiance leaving or a divorce or whether it resulted in prison. Mm-hmm. There is a future there. for us in Christ. There it is. There it is. Well, let me ask you one more thing, because I have no doubt that um, a listener out there is secretly struggling with things that are skirting the lines or crossing the lines of illegality. And for whatever reason, they feel that they can't control it or that maybe it's still private enough to be safe, um, but they don't feel like they could ever tell anybody the specifics because registered sex offenders are just the people who got caught doing what many people are doing right now and hoping Mm -hmm. they won't. 
What do you have to say to those listeners right now who have been listening to this, probably with some fear in their hearts? Some of them are not going to like what I have to say, but you have to have a place where you can be honest. You have to be able to own what you're doing, what you've done. I I chose, I, I was told that maybe if I tried to fight, I could get more charges dropped. But I'm convinced that I, I could have served up to 10 years just on what I was convicted on. I served too. But but my, my thing is this, is that I believe that none of us are able to find freedom when we hold on to secrets. I don't think it's available. I don't think it's possible. And we have to have that place. We have to come to a point where we're willing to open up and be honest about everything. And we have to have that safe place to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. We don't go stand on a street corner and shout it to everybody. Mm-hmm. Where where do they find those safe places? They find those safe places. They should find it at church. <laughs> they find those safe so, places. So where do they find those safe places? <laughs> <laughs> They, they find those safe places. You may find those safe places through a counselor, through a coach. You find safe places like that. One of the first things that stood out to me when I became part of Samson Society, in the very first meeting, I told you it took me three months to do my first online meeting. And I did it. And in that first online meeting, listening to guys share, I spilled my guts. I didn't keep my share brief. Mm. I spilled my guts and told them, I'm a sex offender. I've been to prison. Here's what's happened. And as I said that, I watched those faces on those screens. I watched heads nod. And I knew somehow in my heart that they knew what I was talking about. They maybe haven't done the same things, but they under, understood the struggle that I was going through. And in all the years now that I've been a part of Samson Society, not one time in a face-to-face group, not one time in an online meeting, have I ever had anybody dump shame on me, say, oh my God, what a perv. I'm glad I'm not like you. I've never experienced that. And so I would say find a group. Samson Society is one. There are all kinds of other groups and other meetings that are out there. Heck, I go to AA meetings and I've never struggled with alcohol. But there are programs everywhere if we're just willing to go and be real and be honest. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're going to have to do to find freedom. Are you ever willing for such a person to contact you to tell their story, possibly for the first time? They're welcome to do that, man. I'm always, always excited to be able to share my story and to listen to somebody else as they share their story and open up and own truth. Well, how would someone get in touch with you if they wanted to do that? Well, they can shoot me an email uh, or they can go to my website. My website is rw coaching. Dot com. My email is rwcoaching2 at gmail.com. All right. Fantastic. Well, hey, why don't you stick around for the close? Uh, right. have any biz- have any business we- to take care of in the close, Aaron? No, we can just do the close right now. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, then, I, we're already at the end of the episode. How did that happen? Time flew. This was a great conversation, Ron. Thank you for your openness, your transparency. Uh, I uh, thank you for you, your humility and your willingness to be of use to others. Uh, time flew. I can't believe it's already at the end of the hour. So we're going to have to say goodbye. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And I'm Ron. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. 
Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com. <laughs>